Hello everybody and welcome to episode 4 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that does nothing to add 20 yards to your tee shots, but does talk about the stuff that matters. And today, that stuff is golf course architecture. Now it's a bit of a subculture itself in the world of golf, but it is a deep and fascinating field that is about so much more than just where to put a bunker or what are the best 100 courses in the world. To help unpick the relationship between the playing fields of the game and some of the broader implications they have for other areas of the game and industry that's golf, I'm joined today by two pretty special guests from the course design industry. Mike Clayton is a regular on State of the Game, an accomplished player in his own right, but also a respected analyst and critic of golf courses and a course designer to boot. Mike, really looking forward to today's chat. Thanks, Rod. It'll be fun. I haven't seen Greg for a while since we played there a couple of years ago down in Queenstown, so I need to get back, but the phone will have to do at this point. (laughs) At this point, we'll use world technology. You've given a clue there, Mike, to who our other special guest is today, and he joins us from across the ditch down here in the Antipodes. Another accomplished player, in fact, a member of the only international team to actually win the President's Cup. He's a course designer and critic himself these days. New Zealand's Greg Turner won 13 times as a professional, according to Wikipedia, which I don't trust. Greg, have they got it right from over there in New Zealand? (laughs) Right. Well, I'm not entirely sure. They might have given me an extra one if they gave 13, but... um but I'm not a great statistician, so um, if, if I can gain an extra tournament over the period of time on Wikipedia, I'll you thank them very much. Send them an email and tell them to forward the check as well. Yeah. That, that would be fantastic. Now, gents, as you know, the Northern Trust Open gets underway in the US Tour this week, and that's at Riviera Country Club in LA. Now, every year when this tournament comes around, one of the main reasons to watch it is how the players handle the 10th hole there. It's a short par four, one of the most famous holes in the game. And it got me thinking that this might be a good place to start our chat today, the merits and the intrigue of the short par four. Greg, on your website, your design partner, Scott McPherson, he's written a bunch of really interesting essays, and one of them was about the short par four. I'm going to start with a quote from that, and then we'll we'll hook into uh, into the discussion. This is what Scott wrote. The most ideal hole is the short par four. When designed properly with a small dogleg, offset green and adequate defences, they require an intellectual approach and skillful execution to attain par or better. On these holes, brains beat brawn. The old fox is on equal footing with the young buck, so as Dr. Alistair McKenzie idealised, the greatest pleasure is gained by the greatest number. Greg, I really love the last part of that quote there, and it probably touches on some of the issues we'll talk about today, the greatest pleasure for the greatest number. We don't see a lot of the short par four these days, do we? The 7,000 plus yard courses that we watch the pros playing tournaments on. The short par four is a bit of a dodo, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and um, it'll be hard to disagree with Scott's comments there. I mean, you know, when you start thinking of your favourite holes um, around the world, um, more often than not, it, for me anyway, and I think for, for a lot of people, it tends to be those those short par fours. It's, um, you know, if there was one thing I could change, change in golf, and it's unlikely that that's going to happen, it would be getting rid of par altogether. I think it's it's be, become quite debilitating that you know, some of the most interesting holes um, that I played kind of don't fit into par very well. They're sort of, you know, are they three and a half? So is it a four? Is it a three? It's the same with a short par five to an extent. And, and um, you know, I don't know about you, Clates, but I find in, in, in the business that you get a lot of pressure from clients to not to build holes that are in that sort of, 250 to, to 300 metre range or that 450 to 500 metre range and and generally for me those are the most interesting ones. I don't know about not building them but I think you certainly get rid of hearing the other day about a club that 
under no circumstances have we ever passed 69. So they were happy to have a, a 540 metre hole and a par 70, but a 538 metre hole as a par 4 was, and a par 69 was no good at all. So I think <laughs> I, I think you're right about getting rid of par. And, and Mackenzie had it right. He just spoke about one, two, and three shot holes. So the first of Victoria, which is a tremendous short par 4, I think, is a 233 metre hole. In the, in the Masters, it was a... I mean, we hit a two iron the third day and made an eagle Polter really turned the tournament around the first hole on the last day where he made an eagle with I think a three wood but you know I mean they're great fun holes to play in and I don't know that I, I, if they ever went out I think they're certainly coming back I know that you know, when we do courses we always try and get one or two in there um, and Melbourne's really the home of some of the best ones I've seen the 10th at Royal Melbourne obviously and 15th of Victoria, uh, you know, and clearly the most confounding of all is the 12th on the old course. That's a model for them all, really, because you stand on that tee with no clue what to do. Well, you know, it's kind of obvious what the question is, but the answer's unfathomable sometimes. And and can change day to day, can't it, Clates, which is part of the appeal of these short holes, and it's probably one of the points I wanted to bring up. Golf, in essence, is about engaging the brain and the body, isn't it? Hitting pure seven irons on a football field has limited appeal. You get bored with it after a while. Unless there's some objective with hitting a pure seven iron, it loses some of its appeal, doesn't it? And that's what the short par four does. It makes people think. And and if there's been one good thing about the ball going further, it is that makes holes that were formerly, you know, we'll talk about the 10th at Royal Melbourne because Greg knows that hole well and, you know, people who've watched TV at the President's Cup and the Women's Open last week know it. It's a short dog leg left par four. Um, you know, that hole is more dangerous now because more players can drive it. And we saw that at the President's Cup with, you know, Dustin Johnson. Well, it's only 265 yards. I can take a whack at that and straight over the back of the green, three to get up the hill, pick the ball up. Mm. So, so holes like that, the 15th of Victoria, they're more dangerous now because more people can reach them. So they're much more tempted to go at them. And that's often the unwise shot. Greg, what what have been some of the great short par fours in your mind that you've played? I think Clates has probably talked about one of them there, that 10th at Royal Melbourne. You could just watch players play that all day of, of all capacities and you'll see everything from twos to nines. And But each one will be fascinating watching it unfold. What, what are some of your favourites from around the place and what are some of the elements? Because it's not just the distance, is it? I mean, to just have a flat 210-metre hole doesn't really do anything for anybody, does it? You've got to have some intrigue there as well. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, Clates has, has named a number of them. Melbourne, for some reason, does seem to be um, spring to mind as, as having you know, a, a vast array of those sort of holes. The, f- the 15th of Victoria, um, you know, has always been one of my favourites. I can remember playing, a, and I can't remember whether it was Australian Open there or, or the Victorian P, uh, or uh, Australian PGA. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I remember going out and spending some time on that tee um, on the Thursday or the Friday afternoon um, just because I wanted to watch what other guys were doing. And I think I stood there for a couple of hours and, and I think I saw probably everything from a six iron to a driver head off that tee. Um and you could make a made of you could have made a good case um, for every one every single you know one of those strategies. And mm. uh, you know not only is it a change in conditions um, that that does that, it's just you know it's just a, a change in the way you're feeling. You can you can arrive on that tee in in identical conditions two days in a row. But if you've been you know if you haven't been shaping the ball particularly well in a, in a certain direction, then you know today it's a different strategy than it was yesterday. Even though the conditions might be identical, and even though the pin might be in a similar position, so. Yeah, you know, I mean, you did right. It engages the brain. Um, 
you know, what you want from people when they walk, walk off a golf course is you want them to, for the time to have flown because they've been constantly interested and, and constantly intrigued and they're constantly making decisions and, and looking back and second-guessing themselves. And, and you know, that's when the game is really interesting. And, and, uh, and yeah, when, you know, when you, we talk about the ball going a bit further, it probably has. You know, um, you know, every cloud has a silver lining. Um, <laughs> yeah. it, it probably has helped. I can, I can recall, and, and, and Clates will be much better than me at that remembering where it was, but a few years ago in a, in a U.S. Open, um, there was a – I, I think it was, the, the, there was, a, it was about 15 or 16 and there was eight uh, on the same course, and they were both about identical distance. And they turned one of them into a par three. Um, and by turning it into a par three, I think it was about you know 280 yards or something. Um, well, yeah, it was, t- it was the eighth at Oakmont, which was a par three, but they made it 280 yards. Right, and then there was a hole in the back nine, which which was about the same. Seventeen. Mem- right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and because they had made it, the one of them into a par three, you know, they felt like they had to, you know, and it was that long. They widened the entrance, and they, you know, and it was it was just incredibly dull. Um, whereas the one that was a, that that was a four um, was intriguing. And you know they, they the rough came in and the bunkers you know the green you know everything about that hole was set up to be more interesting um, yeah. at the same distance and and then, you know that was again that was par getting in the way um, of you know what's the best way to, for this hole to play what's the most interesting way what's the you know what's going to really gather people's attention that should be the only question you're asking about setting up a golf hole not whether it's a par four or a par three. Uh, w- and- you- Sorry, the great thing to... about the 15th of Victoria is that, you know, people get obsessed with this stupid risk and reward thing. Oh, risk and reward. That's not a risk and reward hole at all. And, and Tom Doak talks about it. He talks about shades of grey. And the shades of grey are perfectly exemplified at the 15th of Victoria when Stephen Leaney won the Vic Open there years ago, hitting a six iron off the tee. And as you said, Greg, any club from a six iron to a driver is legitimate. But every sort of yard or two yards further up you go, it gets a bit narrower and the trouble gets a bit more and the... Second shot gets a bit more difficult if you're out of place, and so so that's the ultimate shade of grey hole, and it's flat, and it's not very long, and it's straight, and it's you know it's an incredibly great hole, and, and you know I've played that hole my whole life. I played it last Saturday, and every time you stay on that tee, you never really know what to do. You're always you know you know it's kind of a four iron shot, but oh, I can get a three on there, or you you're never sure about what to do. It, it it's the ultimate. What do I do here? And every single time you play it, and I've played it for 40 years, every time every time I get there, it's what do I do today? Because it's always just subtly different. What'd you make on Saturday, Clates? <laughs> I, I hit it in the bunker on the left, which is a complete idiot thing. To, oh, you idiot! I mean, the fairway's 40. It's 40. There's 40 yards of fairway right of the bunker. It's a three-iron shot, and I, you know, I hit it down the bunker line, and I got, you know, you, you know it's going in there, even though it looks like it's not. You know it's going to go in there, and now you've got a 50-yard bunker shot. You're a complete idiot. You know, how many times have you been playing this? Oh, how can you hit it in there? Why didn't you have five on short of it? Or take a drive and hit it on. You know, you're an idiot. But, of course, if you just did a normal three on down the fairway, you're fine. So, so that's why it's a great hole. Indeed. It, it strikes me, it, it's an interesting notion, isn't it, Greg? You, you, you touched on it there, the rigidity of the way people think about golf courses in this day and age. And we've, we've discussed this with Mike before, this sort of development-driven golf course boom we've gone through for the last 20-odd years. You must have a championship course, one of the great lines ever said, Greg Turner, was Clayton last week. I don't know what a championship course is, but I played a lot of championships on terrible golf courses. Um, <laughs> but this rigidity, the notion that it's got to be par 72, it has to have four par fives, four par threes, Ten par fours. When you flip that around, as the course designer, someone who designs golf course, what you do is in fact art, isn't it? It's not paint by numbers. 
It's a far more creative pursuit. Those two must be difficult to marry sometimes. Someone comes to you and says, I want you to build me a golf course. Then they set these parameters that make it really difficult for you to perhaps produce the best golf course. Yeah, look, um, I mean, it's a, I, don't, you know, I don't want to sort of um, um, sound like I'm speaking down to people, but it's a bit of an education process, I think, with a lot of people. You've got to sort of sit down with them and explain why the paint-by-numbers um, uh, attitude doesn't make sense, why, you know, why a lot of manipulation has got to be done in the field. I mean, you know, why, why the way it looks on the plans will not necessarily be the way it, it actually turns out when you're building and, and you can usually, you know, usually if someone's employed you, engaged you, whether it be a club or a, or a, or an individual, um, they've done so because they want you to do that. Um, you know, they want you to lead that process. Um, and you know, usually like after a while I get it. I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's happened a lot more in the last decade. It seems to me, it seems that the, you know, um, and I don't know what Clates thinks about this, but the, that 60s, 70s and, and 80s era, is probably not going to look be looked on very fondly um, in terms of what it produced in, in general in golf course design. And it's, it seems to me in the last 10 or 15 years, um, that's really improved because there has been more discourse, because there has been conversation, discussion, argument, you know, debate, uh, which seemed to disappear for a while. And, um, you know, and, and I think that, you know, that the consequences of that discussion and debate are that there's some really good, you know, much more good work being done today than there was 10 or 15 years ago. Second golden era of golf course design, Clates. Are we in it? Some have said so. Well, I think, yeah, I think Bill Core kind of and, and Crenshaw led that. You know, they built Sandhills and you know, Tom Doak's done some great stuff and Gil Hansen. So, so I think that, that there's been a change in the look of courses and, and the mentality behind them. Um, the, the biggest change for me has been remote golf. People aren't building great golf courses in cities anymore because it's too expensive or mm. the land's not very good. But the, the break was when Dick Youngscap went to Sandhills and built that incredible course out there in the middle of nowhere. And everyone told him it was crazy and it was a success. And, you know, Mike Kaiser went to Bandon and he's done four courses there. And Richard Sattler did two at Barn Boogle and Kaiser's done another one in Nova Scotia that's almost open. So Doak did Bellin Hill. So the revolution really has been the, the success and sometimes failure. Unquestionably, some of them, some of them haven't worked, but... The, you know, the biggest change is people have taken chances on remote golf and where it works, it's incredible. So, so some of those great courses that really started with what Bill Corr and Ben Crenshaw did, in, you know, at Sandals, that's been the revolution really, I think. And, you know, it's hard to, I'm sure it's been done, but it's hard to point to Castle Stewart in Bill Hansen's course in Inverness is another one. You know, it's hard to point to a great course, although it's probably happened that I haven't seen it, but a great course that's been built in a city, as in as Royal Melbourne was or, you know, Wingfoot or, or Sunningdale. Or, I mean, there hasn't been much of that, but there's been great remote golf built, and that's been the revolution, really. Yeah, and I think, you know, and part, partly it, you know, it came back to Jeff Shuckerwood's book a little bit. You know, if you, if you can give credit to one, th- you know, a small part, the golden age of golf design, people started looking at these cool old pictures and, th- and thinking, Boy, this stuff looks a lot better than the stuff we're seeing now. So I think people started looking at pictures of Thomas's work and Mackenzie's work when it was originally done and realised that, boy, that stuff looks pretty good. Mm. It's um, a part of that, obviously, Greg, is to do with the price of land. And, you know, most of the metropolitan golf courses we've seen or nearby to metropolitan of the last 20 or 30 years have to be supported by housing. There's no other way to be able to afford to buy the land and put the golf course. It immediately makes it difficult. Anytime you want to put golf uh, houses around a golf course, it immediately detracts from the golf course, whether you want it to or not, doesn't it? And that's probably been one of the difficulties with that. 
Um, well, yeah, although there are a lot of, um, you know, there are some, maybe not a lot, some very fine golf courses that that have, um, you know, housing around them. Um, you oh. know, I'm thinking, thinking of the likes of Lytham and... Um, Wentworth. And, yeah, <laughs> you know. Wentworth's fun, pretty nice. <laughs> funnily enough, I wasn't thinking about Wentworth. Um, no, 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 but as a housing estate, it's amazing. I mean, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. yeah, yeah, it is, it is. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, even in, in Belgium, that course we used to play the Belgian Open on, play it to Kanaka, Royal Zoo. Yeah, you know, Zoo, I mean, yeah. so so I don't think the two necess- they don't have to fight with each other. Um, you know, the key, I guess, has been land use, has been the fact that the that you know the what used to be considered the least valuable land, um, um, you know, was the best land for golf, uh, and when golf well, golf evolved in the way it did, one could argue because it evolved on that sort of land as well. So there's a little bit of hand in glove, but. Um, you know that land has now become quite, you know, very valuable, um, and also all of a sudden it's hard to get access to it now. You know the remote thing um, that Clates talks about, I think, is it's not the remoteness that's the key. It's it's the fact that they've gone to build golf courses on sites that, um, you know, that's really suit golf, and and it's been golf led development rather than development leading golf, and and that's been the key, hasn't it? It's the fact that yeah. they've they've said, yeah, look, you know, it doesn't matter where it is, uh, we're going to find the best piece of land we can find to put golf on. Uh, and you know, but, you know, they'll build it and they will come. And 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 people said they were mad. Well, they weren't mad. You know, um, I proved it to be true. And um, you know, and I, I, hopefully it's given people pause to sort of look around at what what it already exists in New Zealand. It's quite it's quite amusing. We've got some you know fantastic land for golf and and a few you know pretty average golf courses on that land. But um, you know. But but in places it's just fantastic, and the locals kind of don't really know how good it is. <laughs> don't yeah. know what their so, city is. The, the hidden so, gems. So it turns is New Zealand the country that has the best land for golf, but as a collection, the worst collection of golf courses. Do you think? Yeah, I, I would think that that's probably. <laughs> I get myself in trouble here, won't I? You um, will. No, you won't. No, you won't. No that's one from po- New Zealand's going to be listening. Don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah that's as soon as, as soon as they get the internet, Clates, yeah, Turner's going to be in big trouble. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, thanks very much, guys. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, yes, it probably does. And and quirkily enough, when you look historically back at that, you might say it's because we had such a a um, sort of surplus of good agricultural land in this country, you know, for mm. the number of people there. We built, um, uh, you know, a lot of golf courses got built on good agricultural land, and you know, which of course is the worst place for golf courses. So you've got that big group of, of courses that were built in the wrong place. Um, yeah. You know, and. and but on the flip side of that, you've got quite a few that have been built on some on some great pieces of land. But you know they're they've just you know they've got no they, yeah. they've got three hundred members uh, paying you know three hundred dollars a year, um, and green fees are twenty bucks. And and well, funnily enough, courses aren't in great nick. But <laughs> Arrowtown surely is one of the. I mean, that's a staggeringly bizarre and amazing golf course that is three hundred dollars a year, and you know that, that's one of the most amazing places to play golf in the world. It's certainly unique. Yeah, it's great fun. Arrowtown's great fun. There are a few others like that. There's a place at Rock called Roxburgh um, yeah. nearby here, which is a bit like that. And then you go down to the south coast. There's a place called Aridi Sands, which is, you know, I think is the southernmost links in the world. Uh, in the dunes down there, that you know, you could be in, you know, you could be in the north of Scotland or in, in, in you know, on the west coast of Ireland. It's just fantastic. And they built that course. You know, I said they got they've got 300 members, and they, and they just cost 300 dollars a year, and it is 20 bucks. For a game of golf, and you know, it, it's just so. So those little gems are around. I went to some couple of places up north recently. There's one at the bottom of Ninety Mile Beach, right, um, called Ahipara um, Kaitai Golf Club. Again, boy, they just they just kind of you want to shake them and go, man, you realise <laughs> <laughs> you realise what a little gem you've got here. Yeah. Um, and you know, and, and just with yeah, you know, it's kind of frustrating a little bit because you think, gee, it wouldn't take much 
for this to be you know really world class and but of course they don't have much so um, it's, you know, it's, it's called pro bono Greg's. that's right it's not, <laughs> the, it's not the cost of the architect that's the problem I can assure you uh, giving back <laughs> but, yeah, to the game yeah, we've got one here Port Ferry which is the same where we've done a little bit of work but that's you know an amazing you know, and it's $300 a year and the green fee is 20 bucks or 30 bucks and it's it's just great fun golf there are sort of five or six really exhilarating holes down by the ocean that are that are great fun to play in the stuff away from the ocean is pretty good too, and people don't give it any credit because it doesn't have an ocean beside it, which is a pity. But you know, it's a, you know, it's a it's a much different course from Arrowtown, but exactly the same sort of concept and how it works. And and of course, the locals don't take it that seriously. That's just of their not. golf course, and they play yeah. it. And, you yeah. Well, you've segued nicely into a point that I did want to raise with both of you, and I'll start with you, Clates. You've mentioned that. I spoke to Darius Oliver a while ago, who's obviously a golf course architect. You nut has written a couple of books on yeah. it and all that sort of stuff. The importance of people's first or first few uh, experiences of golf, and I asked Darius, you know, why is he such a golf snob? And you know, what makes him right? And he's a guy who only likes to play golf courses that are, you know, uh, interesting and you know, some of the great sandbelt courses and that sort of thing. It's important golf course architecture, even those who say they've got no interest in it who do play the game. It's important, isn't it? If your first experiences of golf are on a golf course that really isn't any fun and is just really quite difficult, you're not inclined to get into the game, are you, Clates? The playing field itself plays an important role in in fueling people's interest to keep playing the game. Is that often overlooked, do you think? To keep playing it, it does. But when I was started to play golf, I played it, I was talking to someone the other day, it was called Bulleen Public, Camberwell Public. It was 30 cents for nine holes, 40 cents for 18. And I loved it. I thought it was because I was playing, I was hitting the ball. All, all I wanted to do was hit the ball. And when I was old enough, I joined Eastern where I actually played yesterday, my first quarter, which was actually, a de- it's a better course than most people think. But I was lucky enough to have seen in tournaments, Royal Melbourne and Victoria and Yarra Yarra Metropolitan, even before I started to play golf, I- I'd seen Metro and Yarra Yarra. So I knew that there was another level. Of course, when I first played at Royal Melbourne, you know, I think you, you're kind of staggered by, oh boy, this is a completely different game on this. And you finish up like Darius and me and you, you become a golf sub and you only want to play great golf. But there's a place for, I mean, any Eastern, which is a course that no one rates in Melbourne, there's nowhere near the top 100 course in Australia, but it's got four or five holes that are tremendous. If they're on the sand belt, people would be talking about them as, you know, some of the best holes in Melbourne. If there was just sand under them and they, you know, tweaked them a bit, you know, cut a few stupid trees down, they would be, <laughs> people would call them great holes, but because they're sort of, no one thinks about them much. So there, there are lots of courses that, you know, people underrate and don't sort of notice the good things about them because they, because they're obsessed with the condition of the golf course or the reputation of it or the feel of it or, you know, so people judge courses too often by the quality of the experience rather than the quality of the architecture, I think. And, of course, that's why the game does well because not every course can be great. So if it's a great experience, you can get lots of people in playing the game because not every course can be Royal Melbourne, obviously. Greg, Clates doesn't agree with me. Do you see anything in that, that the the quality of the playing fields can have an impact on how many people take up and stick with the game? Well, there's no doubt that that it keeps people in the game and keeps people interested. So don't kind of, you know, I think that, the, the, the enduring popularity of the game and any course is dependent on interest in golf and and what you know what Greg was talking about before about golfing interesting questions and keeping you engaged. You know the enduring popularity of, of, of any course is dependent on that. Yeah, look, I I mean I I kind of agree. I don't want to sit on the fence. It's not like 
not, not what I normally do. But I, you get splitters in your bum, right. Greg. I, I think you're both right. Um, when you start out, the game itself is interesting enough. You know, just trying to trying to move the thing, get it in the air, and move it in the general direction you're trying to is you know provides sufficient intrigue. Uh, it's once you start to develop that skill that that the course, you know, that then the course becomes more important. Um, I think you know my son's twelve years old and he's just, I mean, he just loves the game. But you know, he's a he's a member at every club. I think here in Queenstown, <laughs> you know, he can go out the hills, he can go to Millbrook. He he loves playing golf as much as anything down at our little nine hole municipal by the airport at Frankton, which is, mm. has no real merit at all as a course. But he gets out there with his mates, um, you know, and that's for him just as much fun as any now. In three or four years' time, as his game develops, it won't be. Um, you know, that's when, you know, the, to to stay in the game, to keep moving along, you, you do, I think, have to, you know, or you do tend to develop a greater interest and and need those those add-ons. You know, I think one of the mistakes that we make, and a lot of people make, is that because most people who play golf don't have any clue, really, uh, in spite of what they think, <laughs> don't have any clue about <laughs> about golf course design, that it doesn't affect them. You know, it it, it does. It has a huge impact whether they know anything about it or not. You know, good good design will keep them intrigued. But, you know, at the outset, you know, and it's important, I think, you know, Clayton's is right, as, as we as, as designers and enthusiasts, don't forget the place of just that little muni- municipal course down the road to get people into and started out. And it has to be cheap. It has to be easy. It has to be, it has to be um, unthreatening uh, to get people into the game. But then they've probably got to move forward. And, and that's when you know, the quality of courses that uh, starts to become more significant. Important. I'm really glad you said that, Greg. That it's something that I've always thought. There are a lot of people, in fact, there are probably a number of people who hit the stop button on this podcast as soon as I said the three words, golf course architecture. Oh, I'm not interested <laughs> in that step. But, you know, it really is a subculture within golf. But you're right. Even people who don't think they're interested in golf course architecture, Clates, anybody who's played the game and walked off a golf course and said, I liked that hole, has an interest in architecture, don't they? Whether they think so or realise it or not, you have to have well, an interest in it, don't you? Well, they, they kind of do. But, you know, Greg and Greg will have done it. We redesigned the four-inch hole at Metropolitan and we kind of positioned the bunkers, I thought, pretty strategically. And we left it open on the right because that's where you're not, that's no good down the right. But it's an easy drive to hit down the right and it's an easy second shot to hit down the right because there's no trouble there. And they say, oh, it's a really boring hole. But then they, they keep making six because there's a big bunker across the front right of the green. They keep duffing in the bunker or thing it over the back of the green. So the strategy is so blindingly obvious, it's incredible. But the people who don't get it, don't they just think it's a boring hole, but they keep wondering why they make six. And one of the great holes I've ever seen, I think, on a flat bit of ground was Bill Corr's second hole at Talking Stick in Scottsdale. Tee on a boundary fence, green on a boundary fence, two little bunkers 30 or 40 yards short of the green, just short and right, and a fairway 100 yards wide to the right. And Bill, he told me, he said, some people think it's the best hole I've ever seen, or, you know, not the best hole I've ever seen, but, you know, one of the best holes we've ever done. And some people think it's one of the worst holes they've ever played. And it's, it's just such a brilliant hole. It's just the closer you go to the fence, the, the, the easier it is to get near the hole for three. The further away you go from the fence, you've got, you've got to face that shot across those bunkers, down the slope of the green, and the ball just runs under the fence and you're out of bounds. It's just a brilliant hole. But So so people who – it's such a, a five-year-old could understand that strategy. It's blindingly obvious. But people who've played golf for a long time think it's a dreadful hole because they just – you can't believe they don't see how brilliant the hole is, but that, but they're never going to get it. Mm. <laughs> it sounds, sounds a lot like—is it the fourth or fifth hole at Woking? Um, 
Oh yeah, well, well, yeah, what a brilliant, yeah, the, exactly yeah. the same, exactly the same principle, exactly the same. And of course, you know, that's really the model for that. You know, a big wide fairway, a little bunker in the middle, boundary fence down the right, a green with a tilt, with a bunker at the front. You know, it's like the 12th at St Andrews. We go back to that same thing. The, the question is really obvious, but the answer is <laughs> confounding. The, you know? There is no answer. No, yeah. that's right. That's right. Get it yeah. down the fence. And of course, when you're playing practice round, I mean, Moods and I, Chris Moody is a friend of Greg's. We, we were playing there last year, and of course, it's really easy to blast it down the railway line when you're playing a practice round. But okay, hit that shot in a tournament. Yeah. You know, you get the three on out, whack it left, and you know, finish up with a 30-foot putt for a birdie. And you know, the guy who wins the tournament, Se- Sevy plays it and makes two threes on it because he, you know, he rips it down the line and pitches over the bunker and holds it. So, but you know, just a great hole. Yeah. Greg, you mentioned this word earlier, and I think it's an important one. And it was one of the things that when we started this podcast, part of the idea was this notion of sort of education. And I just find myself learning with every passing second listening to a couple of blokes by yourself. Tell me, as a golf course designer, and you know, you've done several courses, and I'm sure you've done redesigning and remodeling of existing courses. How important do you see that role for yourself? Just educating golfers, club members, those who play the game about some of the intricacies and the enjoyment that can be gained when you take an interest in the design of the field that you're playing on. Oh, look, I think it's critical. And, and you know, I don't want to be condescending when I say that, but, no, um, no. but you know, especially in existing clubs. Um, and quite often, you know, the existing clubs you get to work at are, are clubs of some means. So, the, you know, they've got a lot of members who are successful uh, people in in their own you know walk of life, so they you know the alpha males if you like and alpha females. <laughs> so so it's a little bit hard sometimes to to have a conversation where you're where you're test you know where you're perhaps disagreeing with their their, their views. I mean, I always like to 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 you know I, I tend to open the discussion on that when I'm talking to them and saying, look, you know, you know, in general we think that you know, and it's a reasonable thought that you know the penalty. You know, you penalise people for erring, and the more you err, the greater the penalty should be. And that's, you know, that's a fairly rational, sort of logical way to think about things. And it's probably the reasonable, reasonable way way to run a society, for instance. Um, but I say, yeah, but we're not talking about running a society. We're talking about a game here. We're talking about a sport, something that's supposed to be sort of fun and enjoyable. And and if you if you take that attitude to onto the golf course and how you design a golf course, then you just think, make things increasingly miserable for the people who are least, least able to deal with it. And so you've got to get your head around the fact that actually the reason for placing hazards and the reasons for doing it is not to make it, not to, not to penalize a poor shot. It's just to make the game more interesting, to make it more fun. And wow. once you can get that concept through, you know, it's a, they've got to completely change the, you know, sort of change the frequency, if you like, which they're engaging with the game is once you can get it through their head that this is not about penalizing a bad shot. This is not about penalizing someone who's, 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 uh, you know, uh, the least capable. It's about making the game more interesting making, and, and, and more fun. And if it's all, if that just gets worse and worse, the further off, offline you get, then all you're doing is adding insult to injury. And, and people walk away with the game when you do that. Uh, and drive people away from the game. But that's yeah. probably the most critical point. Clates, at the professional level, we see more and more of this. I mean, we certainly saw it for a long time with the US Open, some slight changes in recent years under Mike Davis. But this, this notion that golf is, in fact, a game of punishment and that the worse your crime, the worse the punishment should be. Rather than a game of questions and riddles that you need to solve, like you talked about at St Andrews there. And, of course, professional golf on television dictates so much of what people think and understand yeah. about the game, don't they? There's a real danger that, that, that people start to think that's what golf's about. It's about penalty and punishment. It's, yeah. it's really not, is it? Well, the, you know, the, 
ideal model for US Open play was Ben Hogan. So they've continued to set up courses to try and find Ben Hogan's when in fact there are none. So, you know, it becomes a, a quest of just hit it where we tell you to hit it. Here's, here's where you have to hit it. Just hit it there. So you're better off on the wrong side of the fairway, but on the fairway, than you are one foot off the fairway, but on the right side of the fairway mm. in terms of where the green is and what the strategy is. So it becomes, you know, I mean, perhaps there's a place for once a year at the US Open for testing that sort of play. But, you know, the ironic thing is when Jeff Ogilvie won the US Open, he said, that's the last time I thought I would have won. I'm the worst. He said, that's the worst part of my game. Mm. So, so it actually doesn't find Ben Hogan's. It finds guys, you know, often it finds guys who are having a great week. Really well, <laughs> or, or have a great yeah. week. Yeah. And Jeff's a tremendous player. But, you know, he said, you know, the Masters is the tournament he should win because he grew up playing at Royal Melbourne. So he understands that. You have space and width, and I mean, Raw Melbourne's the uh, you know it's the ultimate punisher of the player who's hit the fairway to the wrong side of it because you mm. can't get near the hole. You just bounce away 50 feet away, and you put it down four feet, and you miss it, and you know yep. you, how did that happen? But so, so the, you know it's a penal versus strategic form of golf, and you know there's a role for the penal form of golf occasionally, but you know the, the question of tour golf and Europe are as obsessed with it as, or more obsessed than America. It was, the growing of rough and dictating to the player where you must hit on every hole. Mm. And, and of course, players want, players, you know, the unimaginative, dull, unthinking, typical professional golfer wants, he wants equity of punishment. That's what they want. I want to know that if I, if, if I hit that shot, the bloke coming four groups behind hits the same shot, we both get exactly the same right line in the rough and we both get the exact same punishment. Mm. And I want to know that if, if I hit it dead straight and someone hits it 40 yards wide, he's not going to have some sort of shot. He's got to be so. So it becomes the you know this procession of hit it down the middle and you know I mean you know well, you know uh, and Gregor, you, you and I have had many dinners with players who think that way. You know who think Royal Melbourne's no good because it's too wide and Kingston Heath been ruined. You know it's been ruined because they took out all the tea tree and there's not enough rough there. And how do you make Royal Melbourne better? Just grow more rough. I mean you know we've we've sat with them and had dinner for 20 years with them. We know what they say. Well, one of the curious things I think that, that I've discovered is that this understanding or knowledge of, 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 of golf or of golf course design and, and, and of how the game ought to be played and how the game's more interesting is, has got no particular relationship with, with skill at playing the game. You know, there are an awful lot of really fine players and who have played for years who, who have got, you know, I would venture to say have got really no idea at all. Clueless, um, I think, yeah. is the clueless, word. Clueless. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, how many of them have read Golf architecture, or, or the Spirit of St Andrews, or Hunter's book. I mean, you know, they've never heard of Robert Hunter, let alone read his book, let alone understood it. So well, that look, you know, there's... you know, it goes back to their. They don't actually have much interest in golf. They they play it, but they don't have any interest in the history of it or what the great old guys wrote about it or said about it. Or sorry, well, I'm interrupting to... your point. Sorry, no. To to be yeah. to be perfectly frank, I think to be the most successful you can be as a player, it's probably not very helpful to have a, a no, broad sure understanding of that. Um, I'm sure it's you know, not. You want to view you want to view everything you do through an incredibly narrow prism, you know, exactly. through how yeah. how it affects you, and I mean that's how you would get optimal performance. Um, if you were, you know, if you're a sports psychologist or a, um, you know, that's probably what you would be advising. Now, you know, um, I mean, the reality is you 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 probably end up brain dead when you're 35 if you take that attitude, but and 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 end up out of the game, I suspect. But uh, but boy, while you can sustain that, that's a better way to perform. If if performance is your only goal. That's probably a better attitude to take towards performance. And, um, you know, professional golf is an interesting. It's got a lot to answer for in some ways. And, and I'm not trying to play the blame game here. But, 
you know, going right back to where we started this conversation about, you know, about golf course design, I'm, you know, as you know, I, I've got, I believe that as golf, professional golf got more visible, um, it became, you know, uh, it became illegal, if you like, or certainly it was, it was, it was, you, know, you weren't allowed to criticize golf courses. I mean, you know, you got fined if you're on tour and you yeah. criticized a golf course. So, so, you know, the high profile project came along and the golf course wasn't much good, but was then dutifully, um, um, you know, the pros came there and, and dutifully um, waxed lyrical about it. And, you know, and people came and played it and, and it's sort of, well, it must be good because the pros say it's good. Um, the architect didn't learn anything. You know, he went away and made the same mistakes on the next course he designed. And the whole thing, you know, for 30 or 40 years, <laughs> the whole thing became this procession yeah. of mediocrity. Um, you know, yeah. now you've got a situation where, you know, as Clayton says, I think, you know, the professional game itself is 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 just not very interesting the way it's played. Um, it's, it's just a this, business, this isn't pain, it? <laughs> yeah, this pain, I mean, I, you know, I sound like a grumpy old ex-pro, but... I, I watch very little golf um, on television these days. Cause I just don't find it very interesting. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a much more of a power game. Power doesn't game now. Power doesn't doesn't translate onto the television at all. Um, you know, the, you can't tell the difference between some you know, two hundred meter shot and a three hundred and fifty meter shot on television. So, um, so that's not particular. You know, the game just isn't interesting. You don't get the same degree of um, of difference in the way people approach and play things. There isn't that. Right? So it's just not. It's just not. You know, I'm not surprised that in many in, that in the more developed golfing uh, communities that golf's going through a little bit of a of a crisis time because hey, the shop window is a pretty damn dull shop window. Well, it's become uh, personality driven, hasn't it, Greg? It's not about the golf; it's about Tiger Woods, and you only have to look at the response to his off course issues and just what huge news that was to realise that the bulk of the television interest in golf is coming not from the golf itself, but by the one particular personality who's playing it. I mean, Phil Mickelson won't put bums on seats the way that um, Tiger Woods does. John Daly does. In fact, James Erskine, who's a pretty well-connected bloke here in Australia and run a management company and whatnot, he said there's only about four or five people he would pay to play in a golf tournament he was running. They were Woods, Norman, Daly, I think Els, and Tom Watson. So it's not about the golf anymore, is it, Greg? It, 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 and that's probably a little bit about modern society. It's about the people that are playing it. That's what seems seems to drive the interest, not the courses, not the shots, not the, the skill level or the ability, but the, the, the personality of the person at the top of the game. Yeah, look, I mean, I th- again, I, I, we do sound we do sound like three grumpy old men here, but um, nothing wrong with that. There's a there's a market for that, Greg. <laughs> I'm sure there's a market for that somewhere. But uh, yeah, look, oh, it's, it seems like it's a phase. Once the golf gets a little less interesting, then you've got to move into the personalities, and and you run out of stories there. Um, so that'll become less interesting, and and people just migrate to other sports or other or other you know interests, and and it's a slow sort of bleed, I suppose. And it, but it's. It, it's not a good look, and and I, I can't see who's standing up to try and face it. You know, it's not the tours don't. Yeah, you know, the, the tours are just big commercial businesses. You know, organisations. They kind of once once they've, you know, once they've reaped everything they've said here, then they'll move on to something else if you like. And mm. and and I'm just not. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm a little bit depressed and a bit demoralised about that because of that. Yeah, Clayton. I think we spoke about this last time. The 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 possibility or the potentially. Um, um, good things that could flow from the world's tours realising how much more interesting golf is when it's played on interesting golf courses. The President's Cup at Royal Melbourne was fabulous. The Australian Women's Open at Royal Melbourne last week, not sure if you watched any of it, Greg, but I suspect you might have because of where it was being played as opposed to who was playing. If if the tours, and we know they're not likely to, Clates, but if the tours realised if they played more golf on more interesting courses, and your design partner Jeff Ogilvie said it in a story that he wrote, perhaps that would help people to become more interested in golf. 
if I can jump in there, I yeah. I um I can remember twenty years ago sitting down with um, Ken Schofield and having this very conversation and and you know and and Ken I got on fine with Ken you know Ken was commissioner of the European Tour then and I said look I you know I I just 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 it's going to be much better for golf if we do that you know and, and when I came there and and Clates when about the time when when I guess you started as well we used to play a lot of really good courses in the UK especially but in, and 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 that kind of finished um you know we just gradually migrated onto worse and worse golf courses uh and you know in the end Ken said look you know at, at the end of the day if I if I try and sell our players uh, tournaments with two or three hundred thousand pounds less prize money in them mm. but on better courses I'll get fired <laughs> he's uh, right, and isn't he's probably he? right. Yeah, yeah. You might even be tempted to vote that way yourself when you're still playing the game, Craig, because it's fairly important that you be able to make a living, I suppose, isn't it, gents? It's been uh, fabulous to chat about some of that stuff. Before we go, Greg Turner, state of the game in New Zealand. We don't hear enough about golf out of New Zealand. You've produced some fine players over the years. There's obviously a good, strong golf culture there. I visited it once myself some years ago. How's the game looking in New Zealand at the moment? You. Over in, oh, uh, in your part of the it's, world. A, it's a mixture. Um, you know, we've got. You know, I think it, it's the biggest participant sport in New Zealand. Um, we've got really? more golf. Yeah, we've got more golf courses per capita than mm-hmm. than anywhere else in the world, I believe. And um, in spite of the fact that uh, not too many of them are, um, we have a few world class courses now, <laughs> um, yeah. which, which, we, which we didn't used to have. Um, T- TM Golf Design responsible, no doubt, for several of them. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, yes. It'd be fair to say it was good to see Tom don't get ahead of a few years ago. Um, but uh, yeah, look, it's, a, it's it's struggling in a lot of places, like it is everywhere. People's time is 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 more precious than it used to be. So a lot of clubs are struggling. I mean, the, I, I guess the dilemma we have here, which is probably the dilemma, is everywhere. Is is you get, a lot of clubs start competing against each other, and it becomes a bit of a race to the bottom. Um, mm-hmm. You know, budgets get cut. Um, you know, courses are presented. You know, no money goes into into renovation, and the courses get. You know, not only do they not improve, they actually deteriorate, and and people. You know, slowly drift away from the game. So, I mean, that's happening here the same as everywhere. That said, it's probably still um, more accessible as a sport in New Zealand than just about anywhere else in the world. So, so there's some, you know, there's some some bright spots. We're still producing some good young players. We've always been good at producing really good 17, 18, 19, 20 year olds. We're still really lousy at converting that into into good professionals. But um, you know, one day you never know. It's getting harder and harder here too, Greg. I mean, Australia's always punched above its weight, but it's not getting any easier to make your way forward as a as a professional golfer from this part of the world either. So, uh, you know, I think that's partly the nature of the the two behemoth tours in Europe and the US. So, you know, it's harder and harder and harder to get to those tours than it ever has been before. So, whole other issues, nothing to do with golf course design. Last one I wanted to ask you about, Clates, and talking about the impact of, you know, course design on and more broadly about the game. One of the great problems with golf is the expense to play it. A good deal of that expense is green fees and course maintenance contributes greatly to the cost of green fees if we get smart and start building courses more like the barn burgle dunes uh, and lost farm down there in tasmania those that are cheaper to build and cheaper to maintain there has to be a direct impact doesn't there between how we design and maintain our golf courses and the cost to actually play the game clates are you with us oh i think we've lost i think we lost clates I think we must have. He's never been that slow to. Uh, no, come that's back. It, that's exactly right. <laughs> I got through the whole question before he started answering. What, Greg, Greg, your take on that? Just to finish up, then the notion that if we build golf courses the right way, they don't need to be prohibitively expensive to build and maintain, do they? I mean, we've developed Look, a bunch of those courses, but it's not necessary, is it? Especially if they're built in the right places. Um, you know, we've we've just finished working on a course, yeah, not far from Queenstown and Cromwell, which is 
an area that probably is about as close as we've got to the sand belt in Melbourne. Um, and, you know, that course um, is incredibly inexpensive to maintain. Once you convince them that actually sandy, rough, you know, you know sparse um, um, uh, areas off the fairways are actually fine, you know, they don't have to grow long grass, they don't have to spend a lot of time and energy in those areas, that, that just barren, sandy wasteland, if you like, is perfectly uh, is a perfectly fine way to treat your your off fairway areas. Once they get their head around that, um, then yeah, it doesn't need to be expensive at all. And you know, they probably would. You know, they operate probably off a maintenance budget of, of I would suspect, you know, around a hundred thousand, hundred twenty thousand dollars a year. So, so and the course is great. Um, and if it's built in the right place, and and you understand that there's not a need to grow lots of lots of lush grass, then it doesn't need to cost a lot of money. And and doesn't it look better than fountains and dyed water and massive clubhouses and all those other things that gee we are starting to sound like grumpy old men, aren't we? Greg, That's it's right. been uh, it's been fabulous to have a chat to you. One thing I must ask you: I heard this rumor long ago, and I was never sure whether it was true. Did you used to write a column about politics in one of the New Zealand papers, or indeed, do you still? <laughs> yeah, look, I'm guilty. Uh, yeah, no, I did. I did used to do that. So what a diverse, what a diverse and interesting family you come from. Of course, you've got some pretty good pretty handy sportsman in other fields in the Turner family. I think cricket and maybe hockey and a couple of others there. The Turners can play a bit, can't they? Yeah, look, my my uh, two brothers played hockey and cricket for New Zealand. So, And my eldest brother who played hockey for New Zealand was New Zealand's Poet Laureate as well. So um, so there's a wee bit of uh, – that's, that's a wee bit diverse, I suppose you'd say. It's not fair. And, and you get to live in Queenstown. You really are the man who's got everything. What does your wife buy you for Christmas? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, it's, I need the same thing as everybody else, just a bit more time. Socks and undies, mate. That's about what uh, about what it comes down to. Greg, it has been fabulous to chat to you. We'd love to get you back on the show from time to time to talk about all sorts of things, from course design to the state of the game to professional golf and its responsibilities and all those other things. But it's been fabulous of you to take some time today. I took more than I meant to. Thanks for coming along. Uh, my pleasure. Yes, plenty of food for thought there. And again, a big thank you to Greg Turner for taking some time to have a chat to us. And that wraps it up for episode four of State of the Game. I do hope that you've enjoyed it. Next time, we'll be talking about the very bane of the game, slow play. We'll meet a bloke from Australia who thinks he doesn't necessarily have the cure, but has certainly come up with a system that is a step in the right direction. That's next time here on State of the Game. State of the Game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.